So I've thought about how to share this story with you today. And, and again, it's one of those things that can become so familiar to us that we think, what else can we possibly learn? And it's always a dangerous place to get with anything concerning God, because there's always something else to learn. And I think that for me, I have always kind of seen this story through the prism of three words that I want to share with you this morning. And I'm I'm going to tell you, I'm going to stick really close to notes today, just so I get you out of here in time for lunch. Uh, but these three words that I, I think tell the story so well are the mysterious, the melancholy, and the mundane. And so to begin, I want to read for you one of my favorite poems. It's by Lucy Shaw. And I know that the listening to poetry can be a little burdensome for some people. And so, but these words are so descriptive. So lean in, try to take this in. When an angel snapped the old thin threads of speech with an untimely birth announcement, slit the seemly cloth I'm an even more blessed event with the shears of miracle, invaded the privacy of a dream, multiplied to ravage the dark silk of the sky. The innocent ears with swords of sound, news in a new dimension, demanded qualification. The righteous were as vulnerable as any others. They trembled for those strong antecedent fear knots, whether goat herders, virgins, workers in wood, or holy barren priests. In our nights, our complicated modern dreams rarely flower into visions. No contemporary Gabriel dumbfounds our worship or burning visits our bedrooms. No signpost satellite hauls us earthbound, but starstruck half around the world with hope. Are our sensibilities too blunt to be assaulted with spatial power plays and far out proclamations of peace, sterile, skeptics, yet we may be broken to his slow, silent birth, new torn, newborn, ourselves at his beginning new in us. His bigness may still burst our self-containment to tell us without angels' mouths, fear not. God knows we need to hear it. Now, when he may shatter with his most shocking coming, this proud, cracked place. And more if, for longer waiting, he does not. There is much mystery in the birth of Jesus and why he came as he did and what he did. And during this Advent season, we've been reminded week to week of the profound wonder that this really is, the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us. 
But it's impossible for us to make too big of a deal of this. All of our gospel accounts of the birth story, you got to remember, are written on this side of Easter. And therefore, they are filled with a grandiosity that would have been lost somewhat at the present and actual birth of Jesus. But Emmanuel really did happen. God really did make his dwelling among men. And so let me read for you the story one more time. In Luke chapter 2, these words are recorded. And now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In that same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. And so with this great and grand and glorious story, how is the peace working out for you? How is this sense of favor working out for you? How is this message coming through to you? This is an invasion, if you will, of God coming to earth. And each of the characters in this story, week to week, we've looked at each character each part of the story and where they came from and what they were doing and why they came. And we get to this day where we realize that the real central character of the story, though it necessarily involves so many other characters, is really Jesus himself. But many of these other characters are as confused by this story as we are. 
Even down to the shepherds who Luke mentions so significantly there in the early part of the story, who stopped to look in amazement as the angels appear. First one alone announcer and then a heaven filled with a choir of singing voices. And this very story that they hear overflows with beauty and fulfillment. And when we hear it, maybe for just a moment, we can pause and our brains will stop trying to sort it all out and we'll just pause and consider the goodness and the good news it is to be bathed in the narrative of this innocence that is in the story. The innocence in the story is the mystery to me. It is God's holy intrusion. It's the innocent power of God's love and reconciliation. It is the desperate innocence of believing that we and our world can begin all over anew. But not only for children, it's for us adults as well, that the story can end too soon. And so let's linger again for just a few minutes with this story. Dietrich Bonhoeffer described the story as the turning around of all things. He writes that it really passes all of our understanding. The birth of a child is to bring the great turning around of all things. As you probably know, all of human history quite literally revolves around this event. All time is even measured and reckoned with the birth of a Messiah. It was Dionysus, a sixth century monk who created a, a new and revised calendar system for which the birth of Christ is the pivotal point. So every new year points back to his incarnation and moves toward his entry into this world. And that's the mystery of it all. And it's the mystery of it all that we have to sit and ponder for as long as we can. We live in a world that does not encourage pondering. We live in a world that wants it right now. I do. I want it right now. I want the new phone because it's a millisecond faster. I want the new Apple TV because it has more storage and therefore will load quicker than the old one. I want to move fast. I'm with you in this. I want everything to change. I want it to change all the time. My very wiring is that I don't ever want to do the same thing twice. I really don't. My wife can testify to that. You know, I want everything to be different. I don't like traditions that much. I wish we did Christmas different every year in our home. We don't, but I wish we did. But I yield to that because tradition and ritual requires pondering requires stopping and thinking, maybe I don't need the change after all. Maybe the change is pursuing me in the mystery. I think it's part of what this story is all about. And yet there is, along with this mystery, 
a degree of melancholy. Christmas is an emotional time. It's even a stressful time in many of our lives. You know, I watched this in real time last night, not at home, but here. At home, it was peaceful. Here, if you were out in, in any of the services we had this weekend, there were some folks that truly did just get caught up in the joy and the beauty and, and, uh, and loved it, but others had really tight agendas that they were following. I hope it wasn't you. I think it probably wasn't you. But they had places to go and things to do and, and people to meet and presents to wrap and, and eggnog to consume. And so they were wanting to move and move quickly. And I think that one of the reasons that there's so much stress and even so much emotion, so much melancholy, if you will, is because of the expectations we've placed on ourselves during this season. You know, there's really two kinds of melancholy that affect us at this time of year. One is a very real sense of sadness that comes. Christmas is one of those times that we really do remember the people that we've lost and the grief that comes with that. It's legitimate. It's actually important for us to face it, acknowledge it, deal with it, but not remove ourselves from it completely. That's, that's real. Everybody wants to be home for Christmas. Everybody's dreaming of that in one way or another, even the ones who say they're not, they are. They've just dis moved too far away from it. And I'm sure that no one in this room has been spared of some kind of loss that is magnified at Christmas. But there's another kind of melancholy that I think can be changed during this season. If you look up the dictionary definition of melancholy, it is a feeling of sadness with no obvious cause. I looked it up, that's, I promise you that's what it is. And so it's kind of hard to explain. It's this sense of melancholy with no obvious cause. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of like this feeling. I'm just gonna tell you, I kind of like it because it's one of those feelings that you kind of look around and you wonder, does anybody else feel what I feel? You know, you feeling, you feeling it, you know, you feel it, you know, and you want somebody to say, I feel it, you know. I even know when it began in my life. It began when I was 13 years old. And it began because, you know, unlike many of you uh, who love to go outside and play ball and, and run and, and stuff like that, I loved to sit in my room and listen to records. I mean, real records. And I would do that for hours. And I remember when Christmas changed forever for me when I was 13 years old, when I put on this record that had these words in it, you'll be doing all right in your Christmas of white, but I, I'll have a blue, 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 blue Christmas. And I can remember at 13 sitting and listening to that song, and I'm thinking, somebody gets it. 
Elvis gets it. Elvis knows what it's like. Elvis gets this feeling of being blue at Christmas. And I've sung that, I sing that song a lot. I mean, I'd like to lead you in singing it right now. No, I won't. We won't do that. But I like this feeling because I think it helps me actually not think about other things that I really should be sad about other things that really do matter, that really do merit feeling a sense of weight in this world. There is a sadness, like I say, that comes from no obvious cause, but I think it comes from this cause. I think it comes from this sense of coming of age, if you will, that we realize that The world's not always going to be a happy place, despite what one of our largest employers in Central Florida would want us to believe. It's also a time, it's also a sense of a loss of idealism. I'm an idealist by wiring. And so for me, you know, I know there's much wrong with the world, but if I spend too much time there, I can get pretty weird about it. And so I find other things to kind of distract me from it. It's an awareness of how little power you really have in the world. At least you start feeling that way. And you recognize that innocence is not the dominant experience in the world. When I was going to seminary, I found a professor that helped me understand why I felt this way, Walter Brueggemann. One of my professors, he wrote this in a, in a lecture he gave to us and I have his actual words and what he wrote. He said this, he said, there are in the world and in the church, lots of people who think that there is no saving power in their lives. And so they must manage for themselves. And when we manage for ourselves, we grow anxious and angry and greedy and hurtful. There are lots of people in the world who live as though God were not with us, as though we were alone in the world. And if we are alone in the world, if we are alone in the world, then we must have our own way. We must hit out at others who do not agree with us. And we become a destructive force in our communities, in our families. And so, There is a choice to be made at Christmas, whether the angel is telling the truth or not, whether there is a saving among us or whether we will remain unsaved. There is a choice whether God is with us or whether we're on our own. And what we decide makes a difference in how we live our life. And then if it is true, and if we are to focus on the majestic, on the mysterious, and if we're even to realize that there are things that we should feel melancholy about in this world because they matter, then how does that manifest itself in our life? Usually it manifests itself in the mundane parts of our life. We all, you remember no doubt, at a time where you wondered what grand and glorious thing would you do in the world? 
What great thing would you be known for in the world? Did you ever have these feelings? I hope I'm not the only one as a child that thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm sure I'll change the world. I mean, for years, I was sure I would change the world. Wasn't quite sure how, but I knew I would. And I always kept looking for that big grand thing that would happen that would help me do that. And I think I found it and I'll get back to that in a moment. But it's in the mundane that I think you will find it. I want to give you an example of that. And it's going to be a little melancholy, but remember, I like this feeling. And so stay with me for a moment in it. But there's a great poet uh, produced in America in the 19th century, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And you probably know of him. If you've studied any literature at all, you've heard of him. He wrote the great poem, Paul Revere's Ride. Hiawatha, Evangeline, a lot of others. During the American Civil War, Longfellow went through a very difficult time in his life. He was a very happy poet before that. Most of his poets were about grand and glorious things that had been accomplished. I mean, think about Paul Revere's ride for crying. Google it later. It's a great, it's a great poem. But Longfellow had this habit, this mundane habit of writing in a journal every single day and recording the events of his life, what he did every day. And it's where some of his greatest work came from is in the writing it down every day of the mundane things that he did and how those mundane things would evolve into literature, into poetry that have remained for 150 years now is central to the American story anyway. But in 1863, the Civil War was going on and two significant events happened to him in that year. One of them was his wife was killed tragically in a fire in November of that year. And his oldest son, Charles, joined the war effort without Longfellow's permission. He in fact joined the Union Army and Longfellow was very distressed by the fact that he had, especially given that his wife had just died. He was worried about his son Charles. And he got news just weeks later that Charles had been significantly, severely wounded at the Battle of New Hope Church in Virginia in just before Christmas in 1863. And if you look at Longfellow's journal from December of, 19, of 1863 forward, there were no entries. There were no more entries until Christmas Day in 1864. And he wrote this poem that is a famous poem. It's been turned into a song, into many versions of a song. But I want to read this for you. I know there's a lot of poetry here today, but forgive me for that. But hear these words from, from Longfellow, 1864. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. 
and thought how as the day had come the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let me pause right here because most of the versions, if you've ever heard this poem sung in a song, it's usually where it ends, there and then a last verse. But there's two verses in the middle of this poem that are not in any of the recordings of the song made. But here's what happened, but they really tell the story of what happened to Longfellow and why he wrote this. Because in light of all that he was going through, he wrote this. And then from each of those metal accursed mouths, the cannons thundered in the south and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearth stones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But he didn't stop. He didn't stop there. He went on to write this. But then peeled the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. You know what I think happened to him? I think he went back to work. I think he went back to writing. He went back to getting the mundane things in line. It was part of his daily routine. And from that beauty of his work, this gift comes to us. And so for you and me, we've got to remember that the mundane is all caught up in all that we hear in this Christmas story. A friend of mine wrote recently of the amazing way the gospel writers weave their storytelling between the mysterious and the mundane. They do this, he wrote, in such a way that the mysterious is made known through and in the midst of the everyday and the mundane gets lifted up into the realm of mystery. And you know that even those who worshiped Christ early on, even before there were clocks, had certain times that they would say prayers every day. And they measured their very lives by the routine saying of prayers that unfortunately have become somewhat mundane for us to the point where we don't do that much anymore. We don't set aside particular times to pray. We pray if we think of it. We pray maybe before a meal. We pray or we ask for God's blessing or we give God praise at those times where uh, it just seems normal or natural to do it. But the early church 
they focused on making it a part of their routines and even clocks came out of that. And we could talk a long time about that, but I won't. And so we could stop right here with the story, but I want you to not miss some of the mundane things that happened in this ordinary, almost quotidian movement of the story of the gospel account. And I just made note of a few of the events that happened that would not have normally been recorded in any story, but God would deem it recorded in the story he told of his son, of himself coming to this earth. There is a decree given. There's a prophecy fulfilled, a census taken. A child is born. Shepherds are watching. Angels are announcing. Manger is found. A king is pursued. A ritual cleansing is observed and a redeemer is sought. These are all mundane things in each of the lives of the characters of this story. But what we know on this side of Easter is that without the decree, the prophecy would not have been fulfilled. Without the census, the Messiah would not have been recognized. Without the shepherds in the fields, the angels would have had no audience. And the baby would have had no witnesses. Without the manger, the Savior could not have been worshipped and protected. And without the ritual cleansing observed, the Redeemer would not have been acknowledged and recognized. And so what changed? Last night, Pastor Joel talked, and throughout the weekend, this, it seems like a week, it was just a couple of days. But Pastor Joel talked about the shepherds going back to their fields. And asked the question, I wonder how long it lasted. I wonder how long they continued to have that same sense of seeing the baby, the Messiah. We don't know, but as he pointed out, we know what we do. We know how long it lasts with, with us sometimes. But this part, I bet they never looked at the sky the same again. I bet they never saw a bright star the same again. I bet in the mundane, in the routine, and in their obedience, there were a lot of things that changed for them. Joseph and Mary, same thing. They made this long journey back to Nazareth and apparently every step of the journey mattered. And then they did for the next 30 years what families do. They saw other children born, they grew up, they worked until the day when Jesus would make his own journey from Galilee to the Jordan River to join his cousin at a lake for baptism and the heavens would open and once again there would be a proclamation of a son, a father, well pleased and a mission would truly begin with that. And so for you and me, that can happen again in the journey that we make, in the mission that we pursue. Because tomorrow is Monday. For some of us, that means we go back to work tomorrow, Monday. And we see all these things. We wonder, will we remember Christmas? Will we remember the story? And I think we will if we can see it in the light of these things that we do on an ordinary basis matter in extraordinary ways. And so on Monday and the Monday after that, 
And when we usher in a new year, we will see the ordinary moments of our life as wondrous. But first, I think we must ask God to soften our sensibilities. Kathleen Norris, who wrote a book about the quotidian mysteries, the mystery of doing the same things over and over again. Her advice is quit complaining about doing the laundry. The laundry is liturgy. If we see it done in the light of eternity. And so we embrace the mundane parts of our life as if our life depends upon them because it does. And then we listen for those words, fear not, fear not. Brothers and sisters, as we consider this great story and this great gift, we must remind one another to fear not and to embrace the mystery of it 